Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. A public nuisance, Johnson & Johnson found guilty in a landmark opioid crisis ruling. Talk doesn't come cheap. Iran's President Rouhani says he will not negotiate until the country receives sanctions relief. And did I say that? Brazil's president contradicts his own office, saying he didn't reject the G7's offer of aid to help fight fires in the Amazon. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Great to have you with us. G7 leaders now have bolted from Biarritz. We've got President Trump back at the White House. All quiet from Beijing too. Take a look at the markets because right now calm has been restored there right now. It follows Monday's bounce back, of course, too. We saw stocks up 1% or more, taking back half of Friday's slide, in fact, all the more impressive when you consider that we were set to lose around 3% for the U.S. majors yesterday before the president came out at the G7 and saw that tone shift on trade amid his optimism about a future trade deal. I don't really see any change in either Beijing or Washington's stance right now, but perhaps one reason for uh, optimism here might lie in the currency markets. China's central bank pegging the yuan at a stronger level than expected today, though admittedly still weaker versus the US dollar. It's being read, though, as a potential sign that they want to slow the decline in the currency that we've seen over past weeks. An olive branch, perhaps, or just wishful thinking. I tell you what, these next few days are going to be crucial. New US and Chinese tariffs are set to take effect on Sunday this weekend. Will one side blink or could there even be a coordinated tariff truce of some kind? I tell you what, communication is going to be required in that case. And there's still no confirmation of the phone calls that the president said that China had made while he was at the G7 have even taken place. Now, something else that was raised, of course, at the G7 was a U.S.-Iran meeting at some point in the near future. Though I have to say, 24 hours later, hopes fading fast on that front too. Let's get to the drivers because there's lots to discuss. And up first, shares in drug maker Johnson & Johnson higher pre-market today. The firm was found guilty, as I mentioned, of fueling the opioid crisis in a landmark trial in Oklahoma. Compensation payments, though, are far smaller than feared. The devil in the detail here, Alex Field, joins us once again on this story. Alex, great to have you with us. You and I discussed yesterday what would happen if Johnson & Johnson were found guilty in this case, though obviously the compensation payment here far smaller than the $17 billion that the Attorney General was looking for here, though just for one year, and we have to make that clarification here. Talk us through the details and what this guilty verdict now means. 
Yes, they didn't get the $17 billion that they sought, more like $572 million. But to be very clear, the state is taking this as a major victory. The judge, when he gave the ruling, affirmed that the state had made its case that Johnson & Johnson created a public nuisance through misleading marketing practices. Essentially, the state had argued that the pharmaceutical company was pushing these drugs into the market while minimizing the risks. The judge reflected a lot on the opioid crisis that he says has ravaged this state through death and addiction. And in the end, again, he did find that the state had made their case. Now, the $17 billion versus the $572 million, well, the judge essentially said uh, that he was using that monetary award for one year of abatement services in the state of Oklahoma, treatment, prevention, things like that. The state had argued that some 20 or 30 years of abatement is actually needed to end the crisis here. But the judge said that uh, that the length of time was just not made uh, clear enough. There wasn't enough supporting evidence from the state's case uh, to that end. But on the principal argument, very clear that the judge is with Johnson & Johnson here. Uh, excuse me, with the state here, Julia. Yeah, I mean, there's so many questions that I've got here. And of course, Johnson & Johnson have said that they'll fight this. When you're looking at, what, 2,000 other similar lawsuits around the country, the fact that this public nuisance law obviously differs as well between states, but also the fact that if you compare that the settlements, the early settlements that the likes of Purdue Pharma made, and they didn't have to admit culpability in this case, does this perhaps argue that those that are also potentially in question here are better off settling rather than taking this to court, as we've seen with Johnson & Johnson? This has certainly sent a warning to pharmaceutical companies. You know they're going to be thinking now about whether or not to, to pay that money and to settle instead of to be found uh, at fault, instead of uh, being found responsible. Not clear how these cases will go, but absolutely this public nuisance playbook that was used here in Oklahoma will be looked at in other states. This is a fascinating case because you were talking about a legal prescription drug that was being given out. The ultimate finding, though, is that people weren't aware of the risks associated with it. That's really the problem uh, that the judge and the state focused on. So it's certainly something that other states could look to use uh, as they go after pharmaceutical companies as well. Yeah, one of the quotes there, false, misleading and dangerous marketing campaigns that had, quote, caused exponentially increasing rates of addiction, overdose deaths and babies born exposed to opioids. It's a horrifying case and we will continue to watch it closely. Alex, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on to our next driver. Iran's President Rouhani saying no to talks with the United States without sanctions relief. It follows the French efforts, of course, at the G7 to promote a meeting at some point in the near future. Those comments were made by Rouhani on state TV. As Lift the sanctions. All the sanctions against the Iranian nation, which are illegal, cruel and wrong, should be lifted. If you lift all these sanctions, and if you bow your head in respect to the nation of Iran, well, then the situation would be different. John Defterius joins us now. John, great to have you with us. What we've seen in the last few weeks is a, a softening of the U.S. stance here to say, look, OK, we'll negotiate or at least we'll talk here without preconditions. The Iranians saying uh, we've got preconditions of our own and, and we're not talking without sanctions relief. Where do we yeah, go from here? What a 24 here? hours, huh? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, what a 24 hours, Julie, is what I have to say, right? Uh, we had the kind of the euphoria around uh, President Macron's maneuver uh, in France at the G7, then a big bucket of cold water dumped 
on that diplomacy here. Uh, as you suggested, speaking before state TV, which we have to keep in mind because there's a domestic audience there, uh, mm. Rouhani said this is more than a photo op that's going to take place perhaps at the United Nations General Assembly, at least around it, would be a big breakthrough if they got it done. But he said it is all about the sanctions, and we're talking about a huge list, about a thousand items here. Uh, Foreign Minister Javed Zarif went even further, saying it's unimaginable to see that the U.S. would give up any ground before they sit down. So they had the lower expectations. I brought up the, the domestic concerns, and I'll tell you why. Uh, Hassan Rouhani had to justify why Javed Zarif even went to Biarritz right. to initiate the talks. It was seen as a sign of weakness by the hardliners uh, in Iran. So in that context, it's very difficult to see how Rouhani could take an invitation from the United States if there's not a gesture from Donald Trump. So I would suggest at this stage, there's a huge wide gap between what the expectations are from the United States, the expectations from Tehran at this stage, and what does President Macron try to do here now that he's stepped over the edge, try to pull this together and get them back at the table? Can he pull this off? It seems like a difficult, steep climb from here. You make such a great point, John. The, the we need to acknowledge perhaps the olive branch that was, was thrown here by the Iranians, the difficulty of even seeing the foreign minister appearing at the G7 here mm. and what that suggests back home. It's a great point. The leverage that they arguably hold here is that they need to see some kind of sanctions relief. Otherwise, they give up everything that they have here versus what's going on with the nuclear accord and they're no longer adhering to certain elements of it. Talk to us about the impact the sanctions are having. Why is it so important to see sanctions relief here beyond the optics? Well, you bring up a good point about the nuclear agreement. It took years to pull together. So in a span of uh, three to four weeks, difficult to see that they could uh, find an outline to how to amend the 2015 agreement that was uh, poured over line by line in hundreds of pages, of course. Uh, the sanctions relief, they call it economic terrorism, the Iranians. That's not resonating within the G7, so not a lot of sympathy. Uh, but the pain is palatable. Let's put it that way. Uh, foremost, first and foremost, the exports for Iran's uh, crude going from 2.8 million barrels a day just on exports under the nuclear accord uh, down to less than a half a million. The Iranians are not reporting the official figures to OPEC. So these are just analyst estimates on there. But lost revenues of about $50 billion a year. A real, Julia, trading at over 100,000 to the dollar peaking at around 150,000 to the dollar, triggering hyperinflation. The latest figure uh, on a monthly basis was running at 50%. Uh, percent. Uh, unemployment rising, youth unemployment uh, is skyrocketing, skyrocketing at this stage. So you have to wonder, can they get the relief? Uh, and this is what Rouhani has to, needs to get uh, for the Iranians because of the situation. And the Europeans, they haven't been able to put forward this special purpose vehicle or any credit lines. So despite the diplomacy, the hard evidence is not there from the European Union. Yeah, the United States is in the driving seat here. The question is, what next? Mm. John Defteris, thank you so much for that. All right, so let's move on to our next driver. In the last few moments, uh, the Brazilian president saying he's not ruling out accepting an offer of $20 million in aid from the G7 to fight the fires in the Amazon. But Jair Bolsonaro says it's conditional on French President Emmanuel Macron withdrawing supposed insults he made against the Brazilian president. Mr. Bolsonaro's office said earlier the offer of aid would be declined. Shasta Dyson joins us now from Sao Paulo with more. Shasta, great to have you with us. 
is. So we got confirmation at, at CNN that the offer would be rejected from the president's office. He's come out and said, look, those were not my words. What's going on here? Well, Julia, we're seeing this really very petty war of words. As you point out, one minute the president's office says he'll reject the $20 million offer, offer in aid. The next minute he comes out and says, did I say that? I'll only talk about it after Macron withdraws the insults. Macron did call him uh, a liar during the negotiations of a trade deal. Uh, and then there's been other back and forth. But I think what's interesting here is behind the scenes, while all of this is going on, Brazilian businesses and especially the agricultural ind agriculture industry are really bracing for the worst. I mean, there's a, a lot at stake here. Brazil is the world's biggest exporter of both beef and soybeans. A lot of that is produced in the Amazon region. But what we're seeing is all of these traditional pro-agriculture voices coming out and saying, Bolsonaro just needs to be quiet and get to work putting out their fi the fires. They say uh, they really want to distance the established big scale producers from the devastation in the Amazon. Some of them have pointed the finger at small scale and family farmers and ranchers for setting the fires. Uh, but they, they want to be able to sell their beef and their soybeans and their other products on international markets without it, it coming under scrutiny or, or question, you know, if devastation and deforestation is involved. Uh, and so what we're seeing now is countries threatening to boycott these goods. And one of the biggest issues at stake is this massive multi-billion dollar trade deal between the European Union and Mercosur, which joins together uh, South America, four South American nations. It was agreed on in June after 20 years of negotiations. And now Ireland and France are saying, uh, well, we might block it if Brazil can't protect the Amazon. And to be fair, it does play into their hands. France and Ireland were already worried about how this deal would affect their own beef producers. But Bolsonaro is certainly making it easy for them, and he's not dialing back this rhetoric. So it, ironically, you have these, you know, a former agricultural minister known as the chainsaw king, Blaido Maggi, uh, coming out and saying Bolsonaro is ruining our reputation, uh, really just jarring the whole uh, support base for Bolsonaro. We've seen his, his approval rating plummet to 29% uh, from 40%, in part because of this issue over the Amazon, Julia. You see, this is a fascinating point that you make. I mean, there's fears of, of Brazilian products being boycotted over environmental concerns. What does it mean for, for the broader trade deal here, too? But are the domestic Brazilians understanding this? You're saying, yes, actually, as far as the handling of, of the economy is concerned and the handling of this specific issue in the Amazon, his popularity is being dented here. What's the likelihood that he adjusts as a result of that? I think it's an open question, Julia. It's a very good question, but he's a he, Bolsonaro is a very combatant personality. Um, he's not good at dialing back the rhetoric, and while it, clearly once this became an international, the Amazon fires became an international issue, he actually started sending in the army. Uh, he held. He addressed the nation on national TV, whereas before he'd been blaming NGOs for setting the fires to make him look bad. So he's certainly taking it more seriously. Um, but it's not clear that he'll really start uh, towing the line, shall we say, Julia.
Yeah, we need a global dialing down of the rhetoric, I think, somehow. Shasta, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. Shasta Darlington with us there from Sao Paulo. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that we're following around the world. Turkish President Erdogan is set to hold a news conference with Vladimir Putin during his official visit to Russia. The war in Syria will dominate talks between the two men. Mr. Erdogan says Turkish troops will soon enter a planned safe zone in northern Syria after the opening of a joint operation center with the United States over the weekend. Italy's five-star movement has cancelled talks with the opposition Democratic Party aimed at forming a coalition government. That's according to a media reports. It raises the chances of a snap election. Italy's president had given the parties until Wednesday to form a stable coalition following the collapse of Giuseppe Conte's coalition government last week. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move, but coming up, the bitter divorce. The EU tells Boris Johnson, pay up, deal or no deal, and healing relationships. Beijing says it's ready to talk trade, but only if Washington creates the right conditions. Hmm. That's coming up. Stay with CNN. Welcome back to First Move this morning, where we are looking at a solidly higher open for U.S. stocks following the momentum and the handover, I think, that we got from the Europe and the Asia session. And, of course, building on Monday's games as well, that we do see the safe haven yen solidly higher, too. So some interesting messages going on. Let's talk about what we're seeing and thinking right now. Joining us is Stephen Englander. He's the global head of FX Research and head of North American macro strategy at Standard Chartered Bank. Fantastic to have you on the show, as always. What are you thinking right now? Look, there are two big consensus trades in the market. It's, yes. it's long bonds and long gold. Basically, the idea that um, the world's slowing down. Um, Asia may be close to a recession. Europe, not far away. U.S., not close to a recession necessarily, but slowing down. Um, rates are going down. And given the political tensions and, and the lower rates, the you know people are buying gold as a safe haven. I mean, that's a pretty bleak message, quite frankly. And the bond trade is an overcrowded one as well as more and more people are piling in. And, and the United States looks attractive, particularly relative to, to everywhere else. What message is the bond market sending as a result? Because you point out the difference between those that fear recessionary signals coming from the bond markets and perhaps something I'd argue is worse, the Japanification of the bond market. Explain what you mean. Indeed, if you look at the structure of rates, if you're expecting a recession, what you'd expect to see is a very sharp drop in short-term rates and, and a gradual recovery. Instead, what you're seeing is kind of a drop over the next year and no, no recovery, sort of like you know a hockey stick, but with the long end stretching <laughs> out towards the middle of the uh, 2020s, which suggests that the market does, isn't seeing an acute issue, but they're just saying, look, this is an economy that's not going anywhere. Um, not necessarily falling apart, but no, nothing excellent. So we're just talking low growth, low interest rates for the foreseeable future. That's yeah. the message, it's just sluggish. It's sluggish indeed, and, and not necessarily a um, high unemployment economy because, like in Japan, you know, everybody's got a job. Uh, but the enthusiasm with which people sort of look at the economy and assess the prospects for growth are, is very dampened. 
And it's a struggle to get out of that. I mean, that's the problem. And we're seeing that in Europe as well. Everyone thought the United States could escape that. The recovery out of the, the financial crisis was stronger and we're fearful of slipping back into a similar thing. Well, there's a consensus that you have to take a deep breath and say fiscal ultimately. Yeah. But um, there are political issues, you know, obviously in the US, political issues in Europe. And for whatever reason, uh, Japan wants to do fiscal contraction, not expansion. So people are looking at that configuration and sort of saying, why Something not buy bonds? Something has to give, yeah. What about a weaker dollar here, a U.S. dollar? Because it's clearly something that the uh, the president of the United States has talked about. He's come under some fire as a result. But, you know, following the G7 and the meetings that we saw at Jackson Hole as well, the suggestion is actually kind of consensus for the relative strength of the dollar here, and perhaps it's not the best thing. Well, there's actually a, lo a lot of convergence between President Trump and the Jackson Hole participants. Yes. He wants lower rates and a weaker dollar. And if you looked at the papers and, you know, Carney's speech was well reported, but several other papers basically blamed the problems that emerging markets had on too high interest rates and too strong a dollar. Um, there's no mechanism that's obvious by which we go from that intellectual consensus to a weaker dollar. But it's happened in the past that when something seems to be the right thing to happen, it does happen. Because people just put the trades on. They put the trades on that suggest a weaker dollar and stronger something else. Or, the question is, what do you buy at this moment relative to the, the US dollar? Well, I, I think that's the, the tough question. I mean, the only thing that people are buying are the yen. And that's another safe haven Absolutely. trade. Absolutely. Um, I think if you saw Europe get serious about fiscal policy, um, the back end of the European rates curve would, would you know, steepen and we'd see much more interest in Europe than we see right now. But that's part of it, right? That the, um, if you want the dollar weaker, you need the euro stronger. Uh, it's not something that appeals to the ECB right now, but if you could get some growth via fiscal, uh, their tolerance for a stronger euro might pick up. Come on, Germany. <laughs> it's up to you, Steve Englander, so thank you so Always much for joining. Pleasure. Great thank to have you. you with us, the global head of FX Research and head of North American Macro Strategy there at Standard Chartered. All right, let's move on because I want to talk to the UK now in light of the G7 press conference that we got yesterday. Britain has to pay up deal or no deal. That's the message from the EU after the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson suggested the UK wouldn't have to pay all of its $47 billion divorce bill in the event of a no deal Brexit. Anna Stewart joins us now. Anna, you have to clear this up for me because I'm very confused about this divorce bill, what it represents and how much money in the event of a no deal will be around because Boris Johnson was splashing the cash at that press conference yesterday and the EU was saying absolutely not. It's one of the many things that they don't yet really agree on, the $47 billion. But let's really look at this number because this is the calculation that was made if the UK left the EU at the end of March. This was the number agreed under Theresa May. And the number has been calculated to include all sorts of payments that the UK had already committed to spend as part of EU-funded projects for pensions for civil servants. But this was at the end of March. By the time that the UK leaves the EU, assuming it does at the end of November, half a year will have passed. So that number is completely out of date. It will be billions of dollars less. I think it's very interesting that although they don't agree and there's lots of sparring of words, both sides are holding on to the $47 billion figure one can imagine or speculate so that the UK could save face or hell a victory when that number is reduced, which in reality it has been. Julia? 
So basically what we're saying is that there's less, 47, uh, less than $47 billion to hand over in the event of a deal and leaving the EU, but there's less money potentially to splash around, if any at all. <laughs> I think you're just about right there, Julia. There's just less money on the bill. <laughs> and if the, UK, if the UK never leaves, then there's no money at all. Well, if the UK never leaves, we'll continue to pay the money it is paying every month to the EU because it is still a member for now. Uh, and of course, as I'm sure you want to talk about, Boris Johnson has returned from the G7 summit with not much of a welcome. Yes, I am very sure. And we will come back to that, no doubt, in the future. Anna Stewart, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. The Market Open is next. Stay with First Move. move and the opening bell in Tuesday's morning session. We have a higher open for stocks. No news is good news, I think, on the trade front this morning, which is uh, helping us with a little bit of a lift here as well. We're pretty data light here in the United States as well, I think, which also helps. It'll be interesting to see how uh, stocks and broader assets perform. We've got to 10-year yields still near the lows of 2019, however, down to 1.5%, uh, the two-year yield higher than the 10-year yet. Again, we were just talking about that, of course, before the break. We've also had an interesting note coming out from Norway today, the country's massive $1 trillion sovereign wealth fund proposing a diversification away from European stocks and sharply increasing its holding in North American stocks. Interesting signal there coming from a giant pension fund, of course, the oil wealth of Norway there. All right, let's look at some of the individual stock movers in the session. Johnson & Johnson, well and truly in focus after the film, was found guilty of fueling the opioid crisis. They were ordered to pay some $572 million, as we discussed earlier on in the show, less than was expected. If you remember, we mentioned that $17 billion sum that the Attorney General was asking for over the course of some 20 years. Johnson & Johnson say it will appeal, and also other pharma firms have also been given a lift here too. Endo International and Malincrod also in focus, both up after the ruling. The drug makers have manufactured opioids too. Now, the Johnson & Johnson case has made history as a model for the litigation of a crisis which, to use the judge's words in this case, have ravaged the state of Oklahoma and cost countless lives across the country. It's estimated that 130 people die of an opioid overdose every single day in the United States. CNN spoke to the lawyers on both sides about the landmark ruling. We began with the attorney for Johnson & Johnson. It is up to the doctor with their patients to make decisions about who is appropriate for these medications. And that's what the evidence at the trial showed, is that the company was, was extremely responsible in the way it manufactured and marketed these medicines in compliance with the FDA and DEA regulations. Not one doctor in Oklahoma was called to the stand to testify that he or she was misled by anything that the company said or did. And not one patient or family member testified about any abuse 
or misuse associated with the company's medications. The company manufactured two pain medications for patients who suffer from long-term debilitating pain, and the evidence is that those medications were rarely diverted, rarely abused, and amounted to less than 1% of all the opioid medications prescribed in Oklahoma. That's true throughout the country as well. So if you went to the doctor and said, hey doctor, I've got very bad lower back pain, and I've heard a lot about these opioids, and so what I wanna know is if I take them, am I at risk of becoming an addict? Is that something that could happen to me? What your doctor should tell you, if Johnson & Johnson had told the doctor the truth, was look, These companies are claiming they're not addictive drugs, but we never did the research. We never did studies, despite what our own advisors told us to do. And so we don't know whether you have a one in 10% chance of being addicted or 100%. -hmm. But that's not what they did. They went to every doctor and said, look, there is a less than 1% chance of becoming addicted if you use our drugs every day. So that was just a lie. That was lawyer Brad Beckwith. He was part of the team litigating against Johnson & Johnson. And before that, you heard from Johnson & Johnson's attorney, Sabrina Strong. All right, let's move on. The world's biggest wealth manager turning bearish on stocks on fears of a worsening trade war. UBS Wealth Management, which manages more than $2.4 trillion, is now underweight equities. There are other bearish signs of stocks out there as well. New numbers show corporate insiders selling stocks at the fastest pace since just before the last recession. Matt Egan joins us now on this story and has been pouring over the data. Matt, this is a fascinating report. Talk us through the details here, what you've found. Julia, insiders are cashing in their chips like it's 2007. $600 million per day of stock is being sold in August by insiders. That's according to trim tabs. And August is on track to be more than $10 billion of insider selling. That is the fifth month of the year for insider selling topping $10 billion. That hasn't happened since the Great Recession. Now, insider buying and selling is often viewed as a, as a signal of confidence, right? Because these executives, directors, and leading shareholders, they presumably have more information than you and I do about a given company's financials. And so they wouldn't be heading for the exits if they felt really confident about the stock going straight up. Now, last week alone, we saw that there was insider selling by top executives at Salesforce, Visa, Home Depot, and Slack. Now, it's worth mentioning that this $10 billion figure, um, it might not mean as much as it did in 2006 and 2007, the last time we saw this, um, because the stock market was a lot bigger then. And also, we don't really know why the insiders are selling. Um, They could be selling because they're trying to raise money to pay taxes. They could be trying to preempt some shortfall in compensation caused by um, slowdowns in earnings, or maybe they just enjoy filling out those SEC forms. Um, but it's clear that insiders are selling today more than they have been at any other time during the bull market. And if you couple this with the inverted yield curve and the earnings recession, Julia, it does look like another yellow flag for the longest bull market in American history. 
Yeah, it's an interesting one. I guess you could also sell to raise money for tax purposes as well, which is another thing we could uh, we could throw in here too. But it makes sense if your career is leveraged to your job, a lot of your asset wealth is in stocks of the company that you work for, a bit of diversification or better diversification perhaps makes sense. Compare and contrast to buybacks here, though. For the companies themselves, we keep talking about how much stock they're buying back. Just throw this angle in as well for me, please. Yeah, so buybacks are often also looked at as a signal of management confidence. And buybacks have also slowed down. Um, companies announced uh, $2 billion of buybacks per day during the most recent earnings season. While that is a lot of money, um, TrimTab says that is actually a two-year low. Completed buybacks, uh, they were also down 13% during the second quarter at S&P 500 companies. Um, but they remain above the 2017 levels, which are the last year before the tax cuts took William, effect. Straight through so today. I do think that um, buybacks are a little bit more of a mixed signal. When you look at insider selling, I think that, is a, that isn't something that we need to keep an eye on. Because, you know, we have to listen to what executives say about the health of their companies and uh, whether or not there's going to be a recession. But sometimes it may make more sense to actually look at what they do with their own money. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic work on this. And no doubt we will continue to watch this too. Matt Egan, thank you so much for joining us. All right, we're back in a couple of minutes time. Stay with First Move. More to come. to first move. Sorry, it's the way I negotiate. That's how U.S. President Donald Trump defended days of pretty mixed messages on China at the G7 summit in Biarritz. Meanwhile, China's foreign ministry said it didn't know of any phone calls leaders had made to the United States and said that it hopes Washington will create the right conditions for trade talks. What does that actually mean? Well, for more on prospects for further negotiations, Nicholas Consolary is uh, joining us now. He's director of global market research at Eurasia Group. Fantastic Fantastic to have you with us, Nick. Always a pleasure. What do you make of what's going on? I feel like we kind of went nowhere fast, but Friday was an escalation on both sides as far right. as tariff rates are concerned. Yeah, no, I think the Friday was a little bit more indicative than the Monday, right? Yeah. I just don't think a lot has changed here. I mean, Trump made some positive statements around the G7. I think he a little bit overinterpreted any change in China's posture in terms of their willingness to negotiate. And I think fundamentally, the U.S. is asking for China to pursue some very difficult reforms that they don't want to do. So I don't, I don't see that much has changed. They don't want to do. Will they not do? I mean, just looking at some of the commentary from the China's People Daily uh, overnight, um, anyone who wants to use maximum pressure to force China to accept unreasonable demands is doomed to fail. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that, you know, the Chinese per per position all along has been basically, look, we're willing to put some of these agenda items that the U.S. is tabling under consideration, right? Deficit reduction, market access for U.S. companies. But we, when we get into these deeper, more structural issues about how China's economic system operates, I just don't think the Xi administration is really that interested in pursuing the kind of fundamental change the Trump administration wants to see. Yeah, and that's a huge problem if the, if the president of the United States wants to continue to push this. One of the things that he said at the G7, which did catch my uh, attention, was the three million job right, losses right, in China. Right. And he re repeats, it was two million a couple of weeks ago, now it's, right. it's three million. Um, I know it's tough for us to gauge. My initial response was, well, there are 1.6 billion people in China. They could perhaps go a long time losing those kind of yes, jobs without yes. a real problem. 
but can you compare and contrast to anything that we've seen in the past? Well, look, I, I covered China during the financial crisis yes. in 2008, and I remember at that time it was very difficult. You know, China's unemployment numbers never showed that there was meaningful slowdown in employment or a fall off in employment or factory closures, but it still was very difficult for the Chinese government to mask what was really going on on the ground, right? You had protest movements, you had factories shutting down, and that stuff was picked up on social media and in international mm -hmm. coverage, and we just don't see that today. I mean, social media is far more prevalent today yes. than it was back then, too. Yes. Is the government's ability to suppress it also more oh, absolutely. powerful? Yes, absolutely. Or, or would we still hear the level of discontent if... Yeah, well, I think, look, I think both can be true. I think clearly Beijing has more capability to control the domestic narrative now than they ever have. Um, but and you know, but I also think that if we take a step back more structurally, you know, Trump is not wrong. I mean, we, we we don't maybe don't see the sharp slowdown that we saw in the past in China right now, but his basic conclusion that China's economy is on a fragile footing is not fundamentally wrong. So that and that feeds the U.S. strategy that you know the Trump administration thinks they can hold the line here for a while longer. I mean, I made the point yesterday that neither side wants to appear like they need a deal. Right. They can exactly. want a deal or not, but they can't need a deal. Are we approaching breakpoint, though, if we look at some of the other signals, that the weakening of the Chinese yuan, for example, the vulnerabilities that we often talk about in the financial sector, right. bailouts of banks in China in particular, recession fears here in the United States. Right. Are we approaching the point where both go, whatever deal this looks like, we need to make even yeah. a, a sort of nominal one? Yeah, yeah. I would say we're getting closer to it, but we're probably not there yet. You know, I think the chance for a, look, I think that the chance for a comprehensive breakthrough deal is very small, probably before and all the way up to the U.S. election next year. But there is a scenario where we get kind of a ceasefire, a kind of hiatus here, and that would be driven by these fundamental forces, predominantly economic forces, coming to bear on both governments. So that would be the break point. I think clearly we're getting a little bit closer to that in both places. We need to watch that um, in terms of how it may influence Trump's willingness to negotiate, but I don't think we're there yet. Only one of these leaders has to win an election in, in 2020, and President Trump has accused Xi Jinping, or at least the Chinese, of, of trying to wait him out, right. in a sense on this. Yeah. Is that a higher probability, do you think, here than, than China agreeing to some, again, nominal deal? Yeah. Because to your point, and we've gone full circle here, they're not willing to fundamentally change on the things that ultimately President Trump's trying to tackle here, rightly, right. in many cases. Well, you know, I think one of the uh, common misinterpretations about China's domestic politics is this idea that, you know, the Chinese have this long-term strategy, they can kind of do whatever they want, there's no political pressure on Xi. I think the right way to understand huge. it is that there's huge political yeah. pressure on Xi to, you know, ultimately try to get to a deal, not least because of the economic pressures that he's facing. So, yeah, look, it's very hard to read where Trump's going to come down on this. I think my own sense is uh, he's not going to be willing to really walk away from some of these fundamental demands anytime soon. We shall see. Nick, it's going to be interesting, and we'll no doubt get you back. Yeah, thank you. Nick Constery, thank you so much. All right, the trade war isn't scaring away one big American retailer, though. Costco opened its first physical store in China on Tuesday. The store in Shanghai proved so popular it had to shut early due to overcrowding. Costco is the latest foreign retailer to try its luck in China, following in the footsteps of Germany's Aldi. Wow, look at those queues. Many people see an electric future, though, when it comes to getting around in Amazon. They're talking Amsterdam, sorry. They're talking about a transport revolution to cut pollution. Their goal, zero emissions in just over 10 years. John Defterius 
has more. On this edition of the Global Energy Challenge, we focus in on the ambitious targets the Dutch have put in place to reduce carbon pollution. The magic year is 2030. Amsterdam, the city of bicycles and canals, is on a journey to become a clean transport city. For the mayoral office, phase one starts now. At this moment, we have nine places in our city not even qualifying for the European regulation on air quality. This means a revolution in the way which we organize our mobility. The future is electric. Clean energy business, Vattenfall is playing a key infrastructure role. Imagine hundreds of thousands of electric cars in the city and they all want to charge at the same time. Then everything will break down. That's what we want to prevent from happening. So that's why we invented the Flex Power project. So if there is a high demand for energy in a certain area, on a certain street, we reduce the charging speed of the charging poles in that specific area. If there is a surplus of renewable energy, like it's a very sunny day, then we can increase the charging speed. We're the first actually in the world rolling out this on a large scale. Many taxi and chauffeur services have gone electric, but at a starting price of $25,000, most private car owners cannot afford to make the switch. One family has a solution, car share between households. So I think it was my dad who came up with the idea. We do everything by bike and we only use the car for like once or twice a month. Overall, the plan to reduce emissions to zero by 2030 hinges on a further shift in the auto industry. Affordability, tech advancements, and development of a second-hand market in electric vehicles are important to the next phase. More First Move, just ahead. Welcome back to First Move and some breaking news. Philip Morris International has announced it's in discussions with Altria about an all-stock merger. Paul and Monica joins us now. Paul, more than a decade since they split. What do we know about reuniting? Yeah, exactly. 2008 was when Altria split from Philip Morris. The Philip Morris announcing just a few minutes ago that confirming some of the reports that they are in talks with Altria about recombining. It would be a merger of equals if a deal actually goes through. Interesting because we just had CBS and Viacom reunite in the media sector, another uh, big breakup and those two companies getting back together. But with Altria, what's interesting and Philip Morris, these are both companies that have been hurt by the shift away from traditional tobacco cigarettes, as we all know about the huge health risks. And both of these companies are investing heavily in vaping type of products. And when you look at Altria in particular, they've got a huge stake now in Juul, as well as the Canadian cannabis company Kronos. So if they were to reunite, I think they would look a lot different than the old Altria Philip Morris did when it was the days of the Marlboro Man. Geographically very different as well. I mean, Altria's continue to focus on the US market, whereas um, obviously the alternative here, far more international. There's a benefit in that too. Yeah, I think obviously Philip Morris has benefited from the fact that company uh, that consumers in some foreign markets have been slower to shift away from traditional nicotine 
products and tobacco cigarettes. That being said, this is a global phenomenon. I think a combined company clearly would be investing more in smoke-free products in order to try and prove to consumers that they are selling something that's still considered a vice but may not be as unhealthy if they are to shift more to cannabis and vaping. Yeah, a relatively cleaner vice. We'll see. Paul Monica will watch this space. Thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on. Uber and Lyft drivers are putting a pedal to the metal in protest of their working conditions. Hundreds of them are expected to join a caravan of cars on the move across California to back a bill that would change state law. Proposition AB5 would force companies like Uber and Lyft to classify their drivers as employees rather than self-employed contractors. Today, the caravan reaches San Francisco, where Aiza Garcia joins us now. Aiza, what are we expecting today? And just take us through what this law change would mean, because it would mean surely far more benefits and consideration for some of these workers and a, a real break for the business model for, for players like Lyft and Uber. So it still remains to be seen how many caravan drivers will actually come through San Francisco, but organizers are projecting it early at about 75 cars with about 200 different drivers that will be traveling from Los Angeles to to Sacramento, the state capital, um, kind of mirroring a previous labor movement with the United Farm Workers, where farm workers were kind of lobbying for similar rights. Um, so these drivers are essentially looking to be classified as employees, which would give them certain benefits that they're not getting as independent contractors. Um, the legislation is still kind of winding its way through California's um, kind of legislature, but it is expected to, you know, have huge ramifications for gig and for the gig economy and independent contract workers if it is, in fact, approved. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see. Isaac Garcia, thank you so much for joining us on that story. All right, let's take a look at what we're seeing right now for U.S. majors. So adding to the gains that we made in yesterday's trading session, as you can see right now, the Nasdaq up some six-tenths of one percent. No news is good news. As I said earlier on in the show, I think as far as trade and the trade war is concerned between the United States and China, little on the data front as well. So the question is, can we maintain the green that we're seeing across the board as we push it throughout the session? Still watching the bond markets very closely, of course, at inversion. That two-year, 10-year remains a key focus. We'll be back in a couple of hours' time with The Express. But for now, that's it for the show. I'm Julia Chasley. You can also listen to our podcast, cnn.com dot com slash podcast but for now you've been watching first move time to go make yours and a coffee for me i think see you tomorrow when you work you work next level and when you play you play next level and when it's time to sleep sleep number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness providing you with high quality sleep every night sleep next level jd power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store and now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 